This is Guns and Butter. I do think that there is, in fact, an agenda here. If there are going to be uh, measures and policy changes involving, for example, the kind of psychiatric surveillance that's going to take place in our public schools or increasing uh, gun control measures uh, to take away Second Amendment rights, then they need to be based on something that is sound and not not make any sort of decision along those lines or put policies forward simply on the basis of events such as Sandy Hook and the more recent events like Charleston that we really don't know a great deal about. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. James Tracy. Today's show, Sandy Hook and the Politics Behind Mass Shootings. James Tracy is Associate Professor of Media Studies in the School of Communication and Multimedia Studies at Florida Atlantic University. Tracy's work on media history, politics, and culture has appeared in a wide variety of academic journals, edited volumes, and alternative news and opinion outlets. He has written many articles analyzing the events of September 14th, 2012 at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. His most recent articles on the subject include PayPal Pulls Plug on Wolfgang Halbig and Obama's Mental Health Mandate Using Sandy Hook as Pretext Administration Backs Psychiatric Surveillance of School Children. Dr. James Tracy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Bonnie. On January 9th, 2013, Guns and Butter broadcast an interview that we did called Sandy Hook Unanswered Questions about the December 14th, 2012 events at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, at which it is reported that 20 children and seven adults died. That broadcast was less than a month after these events and raised many questions about what actually took place at Sandy Hook Elementary, including a strange press conference given by the medical examiner, parents having been alerted to the incident by receiving text messages from media outlets, medical personnel having been turned away from the crime scene, reports of multiple shooters, etc. It's now been over two and one-half years since these events, and much new research has come to light. What, in your opinion, is some of the most compelling new evidence that independent researchers have come up with? Well, there was a lot of important research that was being done in the immediate aftermath of the event, but I've continued to research it since then. And just about everything that I've come across has raised more questions and made the event even more curious uh, than when I initially stumbled upon it back in uh, late December of, of 2012. I think some of the most compelling and significant research and evidence uh, that's come to light suggesting that this event was contrived in a number of ways by the authorities as well as by the news media uh, have been the pursuits of uh, Wolfgang Halbig, who was a former law enforcement officer and uh, customs agent who's located, in fact, here in, in central Florida, in the same state as me, but uh, a little bit of a distance away. And he has pursued 
relentlessly a number of public records requests that he has filed uh, with the uh, with Newtown and with the state of Connecticut. He's also a school safety expert, so this is really his field. Uh, and really, he is he's picked up, I think, probably where I left off in uh, early 2013, and 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 continued in terms of uh, attempting to uh, to to get evidence that this event took place as the authorities claim that it did. Now, some recent things that he's uncovered uh, have included the the dash cam, uh, the uh, uh, dashboard camera footage from uh, some of the Newtown police cars that are not date stamped. Well, this is really rather odd because dash cam footage in all law enforcement situations must be uh, date and time stamped because it may very well be used in subsequent court proceedings. So it doesn't do any good if there's no date or time stamp on it. So some of the um, footage that Halbig has, uh, has been given does not have the date and time stamp on it. In fact, he went to the Newtown Police Department. He's been up there a number of times and has actually um, uh, been able to view this footage there uh, at the police department. And this is something that's also been documented by the uh, the talk show host, a film crew uh, that uh, John Wells has put together. So these are some of the most recent developments that have, uh, that have come to light. Uh, also, I just found out this past week because I do share notes with Halbig. I've uh, been in contact with him since uh, early 2014. Is that uh, he's had all sorts of obstacles thrown up uh, to really hinder his progress in terms of his public records requests. He has been successful in fundraising. He's been successful in uh, retaining an attorney in terms of pursuing these public records requests. It's rather difficult because he is out of state. And yet his GoFundMe site was disabled back in October of 2014. And more recently, uh, he's been uh, getting donations uh, through PayPal. And on July 27th, PayPal also disabled uh, his account. Uh, and there's no way for him to actually dispute this or anything. Uh, yes, your latest post on memoryholeblog.com is entitled PayPal Pulls Plug on Wolfgang Helbig. Uh, and of course, as you've mentioned, he is, I assume he's retired, but he was a national school safety consultant. So he knows an awful lot about how schools operate, uh, what their safety measures are, Etc. I took a look at Hal Big's website, sandyhookjustice.com. He has a lot of documentation refuting the official narrative of the Sandy Hook events. How has he been going about his investigation? Now, you say that he's been making FOIA requests. He's actually uh, traveled in person to what? The um, Newtown, Connecticut Police Department to get these videos. Is that right? Well, uh, actually, the FOIA requests have been officially fielded now and vetted by uh, the uh, commission there in Connecticut. So he's appeared before them with his uh, attorney a number of times. But he's had a couple, three different attorneys uh, and uh, he has just retained one over the past couple of months, uh, Kay Wilson, who's worked quite well on his behalf. 
the previous attorneys uh, did not do as good of a job, I think, as uh, as he would have preferred. But he's appeared in front of the uh, Freedom of Information Commission uh, that's in Connecticut in an attempt to uh, to to get these these documents. Uh, he's also been successful in getting some of the officials, law enforcement officials, such as the uh, chief of the Newtown Police Department, to uh, testify before the commission uh, in terms of what their roles were, what they were doing on the day of the event. So that's just uh, some of what uh, what he has done and, and, and uh, the things he's actually pursued. You know, uh, Jim, it's interesting that uh, you've mentioned that uh, PayPal has pulled the plug on him and also that his GoFundMe site for his investigation into Sandy Hook, that that plug was pulled. But on his uh, site, he has copies of fundraising postings on the Internet, on Facebook, GoFundMe, and other sites requesting donations for slain children before the so-called Sandy Hook incident even took place. Yeah, that's really something. There are a great many families uh, who are apparently, you know, the uh, families of victims whose children perished in the Sandy Hook event. And they have collectively solicited tens of millions of dollars uh, between those families themselves and organizations that have sprung up. There's really kind of a small industry around this this whole event. And they have used uh, platforms like GoFundMe and PayPal in order to um, – to get funds because, you know, I, th- I think at the end of the day, the American people are really fairly good hearted and uh, they do want to support uh, people that are in, in this type of type of distress. And so these organizations, you know, uh, PayPal just went uh, public fairly recently. They have a $50 billion valuation as far as their stock goes. And uh, so it's rather odd that um, they would somehow not want to be associated with Halbig, who has a fairly modest uh, you know, project here in terms of attempting to bring things to light and to help us to better understand this very complex and, uh, and curious event. One of the things that's unusual is that uh, the, the Adam Lanza's brother, Ryan Lanza, is not in any way an heir to, the, uh, to, to any funds coming from that estate, as far as I know. Now, wasn't his brother originally named as the shooter, and then they changed it to Adam? Yes, and he was apprehended uh, out of state, in fact. And then later, not very long after that, the narrative, the storyline changed, and uh, Adam was the one who was the alleged shooter. Now, I have read that the Sandy Hook Elementary School and the home of the accused shooter, Adam Lanza's mother, Nancy Lanza, have been razed and no longer exist. Doesn't this strike you as odd? Yes, very much so. In fact, it was in October... I believe it was in October of 2013 when the uh, Sandy Hook uh, Elementary School was demolished. So less than one year after the event. And this is the destruction of a crime scene that will be very helpful for investigators to be able to examine and understand the event better. But uh, there was funding appropriated by Governor uh, Malloy. Uh, to the tune of $50 million to to um, raise the building, 
and to build a new Sandy Hook Elementary School, which, by the way, will be used as the basis for the uh, the state-of-the-art secure school uh, across the country for future schools that go up to avoid another Sandy Hook because this is a major concern for school administrators and uh, families as well. They don't want their families to be involved in any sort of event like this. So it, it is rather unusual that the school was uh, destroyed. And then in March of 2015, the Lanza uh, residence was also destroyed. Uh, some researchers suggest that the school was not operating, could not have been operating in 2012. And uh, so Halbig has actually requested the work orders, uh, the maintenance orders uh, that would typically be uh, received and processed by the school administration in terms of maintenance, routine maintenance that needs to be um, you know, taken up and addressed before the beginning of the school year. And photographs that were taken of the school between December of 2012 and uh, in summer to fall of 2013 suggest that the facility itself was in tremendous disrepair. Well, yes, I have uh, read that the Sandy Hook Elementary School had been vacant since 2008. Now, do we have documentation on this? Well, there is uh, there's some documentation, but uh, again, the uh, the Newtown officials are not very, they're really rather tight-fisted in terms of presenting this uh, this evidence the uh, documentation itself that would confirm that the school was in fact operating. Now, if they have that documentation, they can simply turn it over uh, to those that are requesting it, and that would be the the end of the discussion. But uh, it's been it's been difficult to get a good deal of that of that documentation. But we know more about what is not available and what is not forthcoming in terms of the public records request than what has been divulged thus far. Well, if it if it turns out to be the case that um, the Sandy Hook Elementary School had actually been vacant, then uh, we're talking about a very massive deception. It's almost inconceivable. And so it's interesting that uh, Wolfgang Helbig is going after this very documentation. I'm speaking with Associate Professor of Media Studies and investigative journalist Dr. James Tracy. Today's show, Sandy Hook and the Politics Behind Mass Shootings. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You know, after we did the show on Sandy Hook in January of 2013, after having spoken out on the Sandy Hook events, and the corporate media having given the university where you teach bad publicity, there was an attempt by the university administration to go after you. What took place, and has this attempt to silence you been resolved? Well, um, this is something that, of course, began in January of 2013. I had written a handful of articles on uh, Sandy Hook, and a number of those were republished at globalresearch.ca, and so they achieved an international audience. And 
January 7th of uh, 2013, I was contacted by one of the regional newspapers here located in Fort Lauderdale, South Florida, the South Florida Sun Sentinel, and they wanted to do a story on me. And uh, so I went ahead and had a rather frank discussion with the reporter for about 45 minutes to an hour. I think I probably should have known something may have been up. Of the two regional papers here in the area, the Sun Sentinel is usually the one it has a more conservative bent. It's not as favorable towards the faculty interests and things like that. So I went ahead and I had a conversation with uh, this reporter who contacted me a number of times later on in the day and was trying to get me to say that I believed strongly that uh, there were crisis actors, that the whole Sandy Hook thing was staged. And I said, there's no way I'm going to say that. I don't know. I'm just raising these questions. I'm looking at the media coverage and analyzing that, and it's really unusual. A lot of it doesn't make sense. Uh, So they wrote the most inflammatory article, I think, that they possibly could that came out on January 8th. And uh, the lead was along the lines of James Tracy, a professor known for his conspiracy theories, is questioning Sandy Hook, doesn't believe it took place. And then uh, the Drudge Report picked it up. And then the thing became a national story. It was all over the, the U.S. Actually, it was you know something that was also in some European newspapers. I was getting calls from the uh, the Daily Mail in the U.K. and BBC and Reuters and so forth. CNN's uh, AC360 crew was out in my front lawn uh, filming a few days after the Sun Sentinel article came out. This was something that caused my employer a considerable amount of grief. But there's really nothing that they could actually do because I do have a First Amendment right uh, to be able to say what I wish on the blog that is uh, is mine, and it's not affiliated with the university. In fact, there's a disclaimer on the blog that uh, that stated that. And I also have tenure, and I obviously make it a point to use it. The uh, university administration realized they were on really shaky ground. There was very little that they could actually do. They could not win this uh, case in arbitration. And so ultimately, uh, in September of 2013, we settled They wanted to strengthen the disclaimer on my blog, at which I went ahead and did happily. And uh, they did not want for me to use uh, the university's name or my name as professor or any title or anything like that in any blog postings on either my blog or other blogs that I might post to. Thank goodness you have tenure. Isn't tenure now harder to get? Yes, very much so. Only about one quarter of professors, of faculty who teach at American universities today have tenure, surprisingly. About three quarters of them are either contracted instructors, meaning that they have to have their contract renewed every year, every three years, every five years. It's a fixed term. Or they're adjunct instructors, so they don't have any benefits and they're just teaching a class on a piece rate, one or more classes for a fixed rate, whatever that might be. So they're in a rather precarious position. They really can't speak out on controversial issues, even if they were so inclined. 
there's no way that they can actually take a controversial stance. They wouldn't dare to because there's the possibility that they would not have their contract renewed. They would have a reputation that precedes them. So I think it's even more important for professors now who are tenured to actually take controversial stances on issues that they know something about. They can in some way inform the public discussion because where else is that discussion actually going to be informed? Your article of June 19th, 2015, very recently, Where Have All the Crisis Actors Gone?, examines the relationship between the crisisactors.org website of the Denver Vision Box Professional Actors Studio and FEMA's Emergency Management Institute. First of all, what is a crisis actor? Well, um, these are professional, frequently theater actors, live theater actors. There's a particular troupe located in Colorado, but there's there's more than one. This is the best known one. Uh, Vision Box is a theater group, and they work with the Department of Homeland Security in what are live shooter drills. So they may play uh, a parent who is in search of a child at a school. They may play a victim who has been shot. They may play an active shooter. They may play someone who is actively sending out the story, the narrative on Facebook or Twitter uh, for the media to pick up. This is a whole, this is entirely coordinated, and these individuals are playing roles in these live shooter drills. It could be taking place at a school, it could be taking place at a mall, uh, any number of, of public locations. Uh, where you know the public is is very fearful of being involved in an event like this, given the extent of media coverage that something like this uh, actually cultivates, actually receives. So the the crisis actors they proffered themselves in mid to late 2012 in contracting with uh, DHS to provide their services anywhere in the country, and so I wrote a story. I wrote an article, uh, not only that article, which is, as you point out, more recent, but an article in late uh, December of 2012 where I uh, suggested, and I did not by any means assert that this was the case, but I was suggesting that what if there were um, these actors at the Newtown event? Because if you actually look at the specific coverage, the interviews of these individuals, um, there's something about them, their overall countenance, which lacks the trauma that one would be able to see readily in someone who had lost a loved one, particularly, uh, you know, a son or a daughter in first grade. And so this is not, again, anything that I was I was saying in, in a declarative sort of way, but I was saying uh, that there is this group. They're called the Vision Box Crisis Actors, and uh, they're located out of, uh, out of Colorado. They'll do this work anywhere in the United States. And um, it's, rather, uh, it, it's rather interesting if you look at that combined with the overall coverage of, of the Sandy Hook event. I just uh, was seeking to get people to, um, to think 
if this might in fact be the case. And that proved to be, I think, probably the most controversial observation that I made. And it's something that the, um, the major media uh, took and ran with. Uh, they wanted to, of course, make me uh, look to be <laughs> ridiculous. And this, this seemed to be like a very, very extravagant claim uh, at the time. What's a live shooter drill and who stages them? Uh, these are coordinated by federal agencies in, um, in association with local and regional law enforcement. And the whole idea behind them is to heighten the readiness of all parties involved. So everyone from the school uh, administrators uh, who, who might be involved, uh, the local emergency response uh, the paramedics, uh, the uh, law enforcement, in the event that one of these one of these live shooter situations actually transpires in their community, and that's why they uh, sometimes actually enlist actors. Sometimes they may be trained actors. Sometimes they may be just rather you know unskilled or semi skilled improvisational actors who go in and play particular roles during the uh, the given event, the given shooter drill. Well, I was about to ask you if there is evidence that the Sandy Hook events were actually a live shooter drill. Now, uh, we've talked about Wolfgang Halbig in the beginning of our interview. Of course, he is a national school safety consultant. He has evidence on his website he has interesting pictures on his website. There are pictures of a big fast food order in the middle of a mass casualty incident. We're talking about Sandy Hook. There are pictures of parents carrying takeout coffee to the shooting event. Supposedly, they're arriving to see if their children are okay. According to Wolfgang Helbig, this can only happen when you have a Homeland Security and FEMA capstone exercise. Uh, this is what he's saying. Yeah, uh, this is something that I had uh, had thought might in fact be the case very early on, that this was something that uh, was a DHS drill that was being presented uh, to the public as something that uh, had actually transpired. And if you look at a number of the things, the, the lack of the video footage of uh, the evacuation of the school uh, the very limited number of photographs available. Uh, there is, um, again, this is stuff that I was looking at fairly early on, uh, excluding the things that uh, that uh, Wolfgang Halbig has since uh, discovered. Uh, the um, the closed circuit uh, video of the school uh, that would provide evidence of Lanza uh, actually entering the school and carrying out some of the the things that he did, some of the, the murders. Uh, none of this was available. None of it was forthcoming. You know, as well, you have, even in some cases, there's a profusion of social media, of the ability for individuals to be able to take pictures with their phones. Now, the students might not have that, uh, but certainly the administrators, uh, teachers would have access to to some of that technology. But there were no photographs that were available. As well, a lot of the early press coverage 
In fact, even from the Newtown Bee, the uh, local newspaper there, uh, suggested that this was a drill, provided the narrative that there was a, a breakdown of the actual event involving law enforcement as well as uh, the personnel that were actually involved in the aftermath of the event, taking notes and, and things like that. There are all sorts of problems with the narrative itself. The um, the fact that uh, you know families had to wait a considerable time to be reunited with their with their children. Again, there's a limited amounts of of evidence that suggests that a evacuation of that school involving several hundred students uh, ever actually took place. And uh, probably one of the most notable um, examples of this is the uh, sign that was flashing outside of the school ground saying, everybody must check in. Now, that suggests that there was a drill taking place and that the participants actually had to see those who were in charge and check in, whether they were involved in some way, shape, or form as responders or law enforcement or perhaps even actors that were partaking in the event. But everyone had to be accounted for. So that sign... Uh, also suggests that there was a, a DHS a federally coordinated drill that was taking place. And uh, during the Freedom of Information hearings that uh, were taking place up in Connecticut, this is fairly recently, I believe this was back in June, the uh, mayor of Newtown, the first selectman, uh, Patricia uh, Yorda, stated on the record that the Department of Homeland Security put up that sign that said, everyone must check in, and that that sign was put up on or before December 14th. I'm speaking with Associate Professor of Media Studies and investigative journalist Dr. James Tracy. Today's show, Sandy Hook and the politics behind mass shootings. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And what about the famous photograph? You mentioned evacuation. There's one photograph of a sort of a conga line of students being led by an adult female. Uh, People have examined these photos. There have been claims that this photo was not taken that day, uh, that this incident happened in mid-December. Uh, there's no frost on the ground, etc. What do we know about this photograph? That's the most significant photograph, I think, of this whole event because it really drove this event home. It imbued it in the public mind throughout the world. And the photo was allegedly taken by an editor at the Newtown Bee who was also in the fire department and who followed the Newtown police officers onto the scene and was taking photographs through her windshield and out her driver's side door, left and right, as she actually approached the the scene itself. And um, one of which was the photo that you point out, the iconic one that made its way around the world and is identified with the Sandy Hook Massacre. Now, I contacted this individual uh, at the Newtown B back in March of 2013, and I asked her about the photos that she had taken, that one, as well as she must have taken a dozen or two dozen or more photos if she was just clicking as fast as she could. As she claims to have done, she had an interview 
that uh, took place with the Pointer Institute down here in Florida a day or two after the event. And she explained how she was taking these photographs frantically. And so I said, well, who has those photographs? And are those photographs uh, something that you turned over to law enforcement? I imagine, given the gravity of the event, they're things that um, the law enforcement actually wanted for the investigation. And she responded saying that, um, I've not given them over to law enforcement and you're not going to see them and case closed and please don't contact me again. Well, that's rather odd. Uh, again, given the fact that this is uh, one of the most spectacular and tragic you know, mass shootings in the country's history, uh, she has this photographic evidence of the scene as the event was taking place or just having concluded, and yet she was not required to, uh, to give those photographs to law enforcement. What can you tell us about the crisisactors.org website? Well, I talked about this in my article that appeared in June of 2015 at uh, my site, Memory Hole Blog, as well as over at Global Research. I was uh, just doing a bit of, uh, of research, and I went to the, the uh, Vision Box Crisis Actors uh, website. I think it may be Vision Box Crisis Actors, but... I, uh, I went back to that site uh, because this is where my research in part really kind of began back in December of 2012, and I wanted to see what new activity there might actually be there. And there was a, uh, a statement stating the sort of statement that one gets when they go to a site that is defunct, uh, you know, 404 colon not found. And so I went to the Wayback Machine. Uh, the Internet Archive, and I uh, looked at some of the previous posts for the Vision Box Crisis Actors site, and there were statements in the same type, in the same font, that stated something along the lines of, we are temporarily you know, doing reconstruction of the site, we will be back, and then Subsequent to that, there was the 404 colon not found. And so I, I used this as a basis for uh, bringing up the crisis actors issue again and talking about how they appear to be maintaining this site. They appear to be keeping the site open. In fact, the name of the site is crisisactors.org, I'm pretty sure. So it's, it's rather unusual. Typically, if a site has gone defunct and the owner is, is given up you know, use of it, uh, they, they've given up the right to that URL, then it's something that is put up for sale. But here, it, there appears to be a placeholder for the site uh, with the suggestion that it may at one point or another be brought back to life. You know, it'll somehow no longer be dormant. Uh, we don't know. But um, this site was was very active. Again, if you look at the Internet Archive, it received a tremendous amount of traffic when I made the suggestion uh, back in uh, January of, of 2013 that perhaps uh, there were crisis actors involved in this, um, you know, this very complex and tragic event that's being presented in the media. They got a, a, an avalanche of, of traffic. Subsequent to that, again, more recently, the site has, has just gone down. It's gone dormant. Now, there are still these live shooter drills that are taking place and are individuals from this theater group uh, still involved in these? Are there individuals, uh, you know, professional actors from other theater groups still involved? We don't know for certain. Now, 
related to this concern is there are some researchers who suggest that some of the live shooter events that have taken place more recently, uh, you know, Chattanooga or the Lafayette theater shooting or even Charleston may have uh, been created, been constructed uh, along with the media's participation. And of course, if that is the case, then there would be crisis actors. There would be these individuals uh, that would be involved. I'm not necessarily saying from this uh, particular theater troupe, but uh, there would be individuals that are involved. And if you look at the coverage uh, closely from some of these events, you have apparent eyewitnesses, um, you know, victims, uh, those who are loved ones of uh, of the victims, who are doing these rote performances uh, in front of various cameras and sets of microphones, and their dialogue sounds remarkably similar. So in Charleston, uh, you have a number of the um, the victims' families stating that we just want to forgive and forget, which really seems rather unusual in the wake of such a tragic event. And um, something similar to a, a far lesser degree, a far lesser scale concerning uh, Lafayette, which was much more, obviously, much more recent. But uh, you see this being carried out, this taking place uh, with the uh, with the tragic uh, Charleston shooting. Well, yeah, there have been numerous active shooter events, uh, most recently manifest in Charleston, South Carolina. You've mentioned this one. A Dillon Storm Roof was named by the Federal Bureau of Investigation as the suspected killer in that incident. What struck me about Dylan Roof is that, again, here we have a young white male with the same kooky bowl haircut as Adam Lanza, and again, the weird facial expression. I couldn't help but being struck by the similarities in the accused. Yes, they certainly are uh, uncanny. And um, the the way in which that uh, event transpired seems rather unusual. And I think that there are a number of comparisons that we could make to these two personages. And with regard to uh, Dylan Roof, almost immediately we see um, parties such as the Southern Poverty Law Center coming out and stating that he was uh, someone who was captivated by, uh, you know, extreme online discourse of, you know, white supremacy and Nazism and what have you. And you really have to uh, to uh, look more closely at what's going on here. Is this someone who um, actually did exist or is this, uh, again, a personage, a personality that is in some way, shape, or form being created. You could say the same thing about this John Hauser, uh, who was the Lafayette, um, Louisiana theater shooter. Uh, how much of the of his social media postings are in fact authentic? How much of his past that has been drudged up and presented in the news media uh, is in fact authentic? And how much of it has has actually been 
uh, perhaps uh, contrived or embellished to fit the narrative, to fit the storyline. Both of these events uh, seem uh, really rather questionable. But these uh, these mass shootings are taking place on a uh, an increasingly uh, a regular basis. They're a steady drumbeat in the uh, in the news media. The USA Today. And uh, the Congressional Research Service uh, have come out with very interesting studies. I don't know if you've come across or not, but they make it a point to discern between a a mass shooting, a mass killing, and uh, whether or not this event has taken place in public, whether or not it's taken place, for example, in uh, in a home. They have a number of findings that are really rather revealing. And and you wouldn't know this by looking at the news media and the coverage of Chattanooga or Lafayette or what have you because it appears as if the incidence is picking up because these things are so sensationalized. But according to the data of these observers, the number of, of mass shootings in the United States has not increased since 1999. Now, from the 1970s through the present, it has increased Somewhat, it, it's marked over that 40-year span to some degree. But in the past 15 or so years, it's not been that great. And with 2012, if you take away the most recent span, a five-year span from 2009 to 2013, if you take away the Aurora Theater shooting and Sandy Hook, which I believe are both very questionable events that need to be delved into much more closely – Take away those events and the number of mass shootings actually went down between 99 and 2013. I'm speaking with Associate Professor of Media Studies and investigative journalist Dr. James Tracy. Today's show, Sandy Hook and the Politics Behind Mass Shootings. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, those are very interesting statistics, and you say that this was a study that was uh, published in USA Today? Yes, uh, USA Today, uh, this came out uh, within the past couple of weeks, and then the Congressional Congressional Research Service, they came out with their study, I believe, on July 30th or August 1st, and they collaborated with, with the USA Today reporters as well, so they shared some of their some of their work, and then there are criminologists uh, whose work they drew on, uh, who've been looking at the pattern of mass shootings that have taken place over over the years in the United States. Because, as you know, Sandy Hook was something that was grasped by the likes of the Obama administration and uh, certain congressional Democrats and Michael Bloomberg to really push uh, gun control, as well as something we've not discussed yet, but uh, mental health protocols for all uh, school children, mandatory uh, mental health screenings. This was something that was proposed under the George W. Bush administration, and now it's come back in the wake of of Sandy Hook. And the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Education have put forward $170 million in grants 
uh, back in September of 2014 for school districts to embark on these, you know, these mental health protocols where every every student is kind of a threat until they're uh, till they're proven uh, proven innocent or diagnosed in, in some way, shape, or form. So all of, all of these things they are in many ways attached uh, to each other. And uh, it's it's very it's very concerning. What I'm saying is that these these types of broader agendas that we really don't think about or see the broader public when we are looking at coverage of a mass shooting, but it is used. Rahm Emanuel will say, "Don't let a crisis don't let any crisis go to waste. Uh, you want to take advantage of it." I think that it is that mindset that federal authorities and powerful figures such as Bloomberg are actually approaching these sorts of events uh, with. Uh, yes, and you've mentioned the uh, psychiatric surveillance of school children. You do have an article entitled Obama's Mental Health Mandate using Sandy Hook as pretext, administration backs psychiatric surveillance of school children. And that, of course, examines President Obama's executive policy which is called Now is the Time, the President's Plan to Protect Our Children and Our Communities by Reducing Gun Violence. And so I guess that policy of his has to do both with guns and also psychiatric surveillance of school children. Yes, exactly. It's very frightening. And as these recent studies, uh, one by USA Today, suggests, there is a certain relationship between uh, mental illness and these tragic events, but it is not as clear-cut as one might think, and a majority of the offenders might be under some sort of emotional distress or something along those lines, uh, but they they may not have exhibited, in many cases, they've not exhibited any, any type of mental illness, they've not been uh, adjudicated mentally ill or anything. So are we even... Um, really pursuing the root of the problem here? Or is this an entirely different agenda where we are going to have many of our children uh, diagnosed with one mental health disorder or another and then medicated? Of course, you've got uh, Big Pharma in the background here as well uh, that uh, have their own agendas in terms of generating profit by uh, increasing their their clientele. And um, as uh, Colin Ross, the uh, psychiatrist, remarked to me several months ago when I interviewed him, he said, this is going in the completely wrong direction because you're going to end up diagnosing a child for one thing or another. They're going to be stigmatized uh, for much of their childhood years. They'll be placed on a um, uh, an antidepressant which really does not do a great deal of, of good. We have the research. These are, these are uh, Colin Ross's uh, words and assessment of the overall issue. And so it's very, very concerning if we are, in fact, going in this direction. And it looks as if we are. Uh, along those lines, back in November of 2014, there was a report that was issued by a commission that was set up to study the Sandy Hook shooting and the whole uh, situation of Adam Lanza, what contributed to his act. Uh, this is the, um, the Connecticut Commission on the Rights of the Child that was established to, to look at this. I think that I, I also cite that in this, in this article. It's a very detailed study about 
this individual, Adam Lanza, and uh, the struggle, the apparent struggle that his family had, that his mother in particular had with his uh, special needs, and in what ways his condition contributed to um, you know, his final act, and what we can do to actually prevent that. And the study is especially interesting because it is in so many ways, if you read it through, it is in so many ways vague. Uh, there's nothing really clear cut. So the, the sort of the prognosis involving Lanza and these broader types of, of social engineering uh, measures that we have to undertake can really be applied to pretty much uh, any child that has an admixture of, uh, of these learning disabilities. You know, if they have Asperger's or ADHD, they too could possibly be a ticking time bomb. There was a recent school shooting in Pakistan. At the time, there was a photograph circulating in the news of a male student killed there that was identical to a male student supposedly shot at Sandy Hook. Do we have any further information on this victim? No, but uh, this was something that was actually confirmed by uh, the BBC because they were among the outlets that were actually... Uh, presenting this image of Noah Posner, who was allegedly one of the children that uh, was killed in the Sandy Hook uh, Elementary School massacre back December of 2012. Lo and behold, his image appears uh, following this shooting at at this school, this uh, grade school, uh, back in December of 2014. In fact, it was almost two days. It was, I think, took place on December 16th. But in the aftermath, where there is this morning after the event, there are um, photographs of uh, individuals who are grieving, and uh, there are a number of of, of uh, images of representations of the children who would apparently been slain, and one of them is Noah Posner. And there's no mistaking this at all. In fact, you could, you could find the images online, and they are included in uh, a Facebook page that was set up by the families uh, who were mourning these uh, Pakistani children who were allegedly killed in this massacre. And I wrote about this in early January of 2015 because I found it to be really highly unusual. And there were a number of other, um, you know, bloggers who were covering this as well and, and various alternative media outlets that were highlighting this. And a few months later, I received a copyright uh, strike by the father of uh, Noah Posner, Lenny Posner. You may have heard about this. He's going around to all sorts of uh, bloggers who are questioning and investigating the Sandy Hook event and filing a copyright claim stating that he has the the right to that uh, particular image. And so I was contacted by my ISP uh, and, uh, and told that uh, there's this violation and if you wish – you can uh, go ahead and file a counterclaim, but then you open yourself up to a uh, to a potential lawsuit uh, by the individual. So I sent uh, actually a letter via certified mail to this party asking for proof 
that he, in fact, uh, did uh, have the copyright to this uh, particular image, which has gone all over the Internet back in December of 2012. I mean, there are all sorts of news organizations that have, have used the image of this, uh, of this boy who was apparently slain in the Sandy Hook uh, event. And uh, I, I never did receive a response from this party. Uh, with any proof that the image does, in fact, belong to him. Oh, that's very interesting. All of these threads out there that never, ever get resolved. Have several vision box actors been identified who closely resembled uh, supposed emergency responders and family members on the scene in Sandy Hook on December 14th, 2012, and thereafter, some of whom have made themselves readily available for press interviews? If you look at the uh, photographs, it appears as if some of the same actors who were featured on the Vision Box uh, Crisis Actors site, crisisactors.org, also made themselves available for uh, major media outlets for interviews in the um, few days after the Sandy Hook event. Yes, that, that is correct. And finally, uh, Dr. Tracy, what would you say the upshot of all of this is? I mean, after Sandy Hook, then there was a a major national push uh, for gun control to take people's guns away from them. They never really got very far on a national level, but it seemed to me that uh, different states were enacting gun legislation. And then, of course, we've discussed the psychiatric uh, element in Obama's uh, policy directive, where do you think this is all headed? Well, I think that I seemed as an academic like an anomaly coming out and suggesting that uh, the Obama administration is pulling a fast one with Sandy Hook uh, for gun control. And uh, that's not really what I claimed. I ultimately said that this could be quite possibly a rationale, a basis for this. If you look at the overtures of then Attorney General Eric Holder, who visited uh, Connecticut back in uh, late November of 2012 when the momentum was picking back up after Obama's reelection, uh, specifically for gun control. But um, I'm, I'm afraid we have these events that are being played up by the news media up to this day. It's a steady drumbeat. And I'm inclined to think that uh, some of them uh, need to be investigated much more closely. Our major corporate news media are not doing so. They'll report on an event and then they move on to something else entirely. And uh, I do think that there is, in fact, uh, an agenda here to strengthen uh, gun control measures uh, to take away Second Amendment rights. And if that, in fact, is the case, if there is um, you know, a real basis for that, then my position has been uh, we should actually have a debate out in the open to discuss this and not not make any sort of decision along those lines or put policies forward simply on the basis of events such as Sandy Hook and the more recent events like Charleston that we really don't know a great deal about and that investigative journalists, with the exception of the alternative media, have not actually delved into to the extent that they actually should. You know, you have 
people doing YouTubes and uh, and digging into these events on blogs that are actually doing investigative journalism, uh, like um, I think some investigative journalists actually used to do maybe 20 or 30 years ago or more. And that's not being done. So if there are going to be uh, measures and policy changes involving, for example, the kind of psychiatric surveillance that's going to take place in our public schools or uh, increasing uh, gun control measures, then they need to be based on something that is sound. They can't be based on these events that we know very little about. Think about 9-11. How much do we really know about that event? And yet, much of our foreign policy and much of our domestic policy and the way in which we've sacrificed our civil liberties for security is rooted in that event. We still don't know uh, as much as we should about that 14 years later. It, it, it's no way to really base a, a republic that uh, purports to be a democracy, that purports to have a free press and so forth. Uh, if we really know very little about these events, uh, that much of our history uh, and, and, and much of our future will, will be predicated. Dr. James Tracy, thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. James Tracy. Today's show has been Sandy Hook and the Politics Behind Mass Shootings. James Tracy is Associate Professor of Media Studies in the School of Communication and Multimedia Studies at Florida Atlantic University. Tracy's work on media history, politics, and culture has appeared in a wide variety of academic journals, edited volumes, and alternative news and opinion outlets. He has written many articles analyzing the events of September 14, 2012, at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. His most recent articles on the subject include PayPal Pulls Plug on Wolfgang Helbig and Obama's Mental Health Mandate, using Sandy Hook as pretext, Administration Backs Psychiatric Surveillance of Schoolchildren. Visit his blog at memoryholeblog.com. That's memoryholeblog.com. His articles are also posted at globalresearch.ca. The website for National School Safety Consultant Wolfgang Helbig is sandyhookjustice.com. That's sandyhookjustice.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit gunsandbutter.org to sign up for our email list and receive our newsletter. Guns and Butter Online now includes a new website, an active Twitter feed, show archives, and a blog. Follow us at G&B Radio. Then universally we will stay
And be on the lookout for the spirit sniper Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace Give thanks, live life, and release You dig me?